Hello and welcome to my series of podcasts on the voice of the mad in Britain between the 17th and the 20th century. I'm Professor Rab Houston and I work for the School of History in the University of St Andrews. This is the third of three podcasts that are about the history of suicide and the document that I put on the website to talk about is an example of a coroner's inquest from the end of the 18th century. Coroners are found everywhere in the English-speaking world. They originated in the 13th century in England. They form an important part of both fictional and factual crime programmes on TV and in literature. And much of what we know about suicide in the past comes from their records. 18th and 19th century English coroner's inquests investigated roughly one death in every 20. They only sat if the death was unnatural or suspicious. Their main task was to discover if someone else might have been involved in the death or if a crime might have been committed. Suicide was part of their remit. Coroners, it's worth knowing, presided over the inquest, ensuring the correct procedures were followed. But the verdict was that of the jury, not the coroner. Now in this case, the detail about the body being in the same room as the jury may seem shocking. However, juries in the past were obliged to see the body they were being asked to assess. The aim was to create transparency and establish a shared responsibility for the verdict based on the evidence of each juror's own eyes. The coroner in this case classed himself as a gentleman, though he may have been a lawyer by training, as many were by this date. The foreman of the jury, on the other hand, used a mark rather than signing his own name, suggesting that his literacy was limited and that he was some kind of manual worker. And the reason I say that is that illiteracy was very unusual in London at this date. Still, the foreman would have been a householder, a taxpayer and probably an employer of labour because those were the qualifications for becoming a coroner's juryman. The truly poignant part of this verdict is that nobody knew the name of the man who had hanged himself. Juries were always comprised of between 10 and 24 men from the locality where the body was found. That means the suicide must have been an outsider, perhaps a vagrant or even a suspected criminal, as he seems to have been locked in a room or cage with iron bars. He used the only means at his disposal, his own handkerchief, to end his life by hanging. London at this date was one of the biggest cities in the world. It had perhaps a million people in it 
and there were many transients, especially in the poorer districts like Southwark, south of the River Thames, and in the East End. Though he was a complete stranger, unknown to any of them, the jury was prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he was insane when he killed himself. In the Latin of formal jury findings, he was non compus mentis. The alternative judgment, which they could have found, was that he knew what he was doing and was what was called in Latin a fellow de se, a felon of himself. The verdict of not being of sound mind, memory and understanding, but lunatic and distracted, which had been the one inquests had usually given in suicide cases for more than a century, may indicate the emergence of an attitude which automatically linked self-murder with mental illness. However, suicide, as you've seen already, still carried considerable stigma. The jury was obliged to value the handkerchief that the man used to hang himself because the object that caused any unnatural death was forfeited to the crown. Now that may seem very odd to us, but it was simply a way of asserting the crown's power and authority. During the 19th century, that could even mean a railway engine being forfeited in the case where it had caused a suicide to die or an accident on railways. And what juries did in the 19th century was used what was called the law of deodand, deodand is something given to God, to punish what they regarded as negligent operating companies. In the case of the nameless man, the jury's verdict and findings concluded matters, albeit in a way that may seem quite heartless to us. The only other thing to do was bury him. He would have had a pauper burial at best, meaning his corpse was interred in an unmarked grave in a less desirable part of the parish churchyard, perhaps alongside other poor people like him. However, it is also possible that the vicar of, of the parish prevented the suicide from joining the community of the righteous dead by refusing to read the burial service over him. Potentially, this was the final act of exclusion of a man whose life had already been lived on the margins. Now, you might be relieved to hear that this is the last of the podcasts on suicide. In the next five weeks, I'm going to look at what patients made of entering and being in what we call mental hospitals and what were known until 1930s as lunatic asylums. The podcasts are about life in the institutions which dominated care of the insane and mentally impaired from the mid-19th to the late 20th century. Do please join me for those podcasts.